0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning. As Matt said, it, it's, uh, it's, it's such a, um, a joy to look out and see you all this morning. Um, scanning the room. No, we've all met, so I don't need to necessarily introduce myself. Um, but I was like, man, there's enough people, I can see every single face in here. So we're, we're going to be good. Um, and uh, this morning, like Matt said, we're going to be continuing on in our series, uh, The Mission of God's People. And we'll be looking at uh, one of the fundamental principles of, of what it is to be a Christian— On mission. Um, It's fundamental in two ways. Uh, First, both personally, uh, I mean positionally, we are redeemed people. And also missionally, we are people who live redemptively. So the aptly named title of our sermon this morning is people who are redeemed for redemptive living. Um, And when I say the word redeemed and redemptive, your mind may quickly go to cashing in all of your Starbucks redeemed uh, stars for uh, extra coffee or redeeming points maybe on a, on a credit card or something like that, uh, but this is, not, this is not a Capital One pitch. We're not going to be talking about that. Uh, to be redeemed and to live redemptively is more than just uh, free rewards uh, that you actually have paid for in another way, that they're just reallocating their profits to cause you to spend more money. Um, No, the the idea of being redeemed and to live redemptively is actually based on the the character and nature of who God is. Therefore, we must see God as the Redeemer. Uh, the, The great reformer John Calvin once wrote, the true wisdom of man consists in the knowledge of God as the Creator and redeemer. We will miss so much in scripture and, and I believe in life if we don't digest this aspect of who God is. Um, so we'll now look at our passage this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. It's Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be uh, looking at verses 7 through 10 verses 7 through 10. I'm going to start reading in 3 because I love Ephesians, and the more we read about Ephesians, I think it's just really good. So it'll also set the stage a little bit for our verse this morning. So Ephesians chapter 1, 7 through 10 is going to be our focus. We're going to start in verse 3. This is what the Word of God says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption in himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now here we go, verse 7. In him we have redemption Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, truly your children are blessed. In Christ we have all that we need for life and godliness. In him we have the redemption by his blood. Father, study our hearts this morning. Guide our minds in Christ Jesus to examine that which hinders our faith. Cast out all fear from our hearts and minds. For perfect love cast out all fear. Therefore, may we who are recipients of the perfect love, made manifest in Jesus Christ, love each other, love our neighbor, and may we, as you spoke through the prophet Micah, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. Sharpen our hearts and minds through your word this day. Amen. As we set forth kind of in in our premise this morning that Christians are to be redeemed people who practice redemptive living, we're going to look at three aspects of that. The first being redemption is a biblical theme. Redemption as the biblical theme and also being the character of God. Uh, In verse 9 of our passage this morning in Ephesians, Paul is talking about redemption. He says, Making known to us the mystery of his will. How he has and will redeem his people. And he goes on to say, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Now, this means that God's plan for redeeming his people has been happening since the beginning. Right? It was not a last minute kind of like, oh man, we need to, I need to redeem these guys. What are we going to do? No, this is this is a plan from the beginning. We look at the origins of the word redeemed. Uh, the Latin redemptio is the idea of something being bought back or freed, which is in part where we get our word liberty. Our church is named liberty. Uh, and in Greek, the olipostron, the idea is uh, of deliverance or ransom. We see that humanity in the beginning, in Genesis 1, uh, was made by God. But when we rebelled against God through sin, we in essence transferred teams, which is why Paul uses the language in Colossians 1.13 that we were rescued from the dominion of darkness to be bought back and to be brought back uh, to the kingdom of his beloved son. There is a buying back or liberation of God's people God shows throughout all of scripture this kind of movement, but there's a particular focus of redemption throughout the book of Exodus. Um, And and this shows us what God does in, in the events of Exodus, will point us to the cross. And the cross will point us back to the Exodus, which is God's way of saying, this is kind of my thing, this is what I do, I'm a redeemer, watch me do it again, and even in a greater way. So when we look back to the Exodus, it may be important for us to set the stage a little. You see, the promised people of God, the Israelites, were in Egypt because of the famine that was occurring during the time of Joseph. And because uh, of God's promise keeping, he preserves his people by taking them out of a land of famine and bringing them into Egypt where he had raised up Joseph to be the second in command over all of Egypt, giving him the wisdom to set aside enough food to last for the seven years of famine, because there would be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. In so doing, uh, he brings Israel, the 12 sons and now 12 tribes of Israel um, into the land of Egypt. Now these 12 tribes did a better job at reproducing themselves than even the people of liberty, right? And they increased in severe numbers, right? They, they, um, they, they just kept growing in, in, in um, their population of the Israelites. These 12 tribes would grow and grow and grow. Now, what happens is Joseph dies, and so does the Pharaoh, in which this agreement to bring the people of God in and to protect them and give them a place of refuge Uh, Dies and and years pass, and the new ruling pharaoh um, ends up putting the people of Israel into bondage and slavery through enacting severe taxes and systems that would cause an ever-increasing population of Israelites to be forced into slavery. Now, here in Exodus, we also see the first mention of the word redemption, and in Exodus 6.6, it's the word goel. You could say it's the first goel, which is a less popular song. I had to get a dad joke in today of any days, right? It was the it was the first goel, right? You'll remember that now, you will. But this is what this is what the this is what God says in Exodus 6:6. 6, six. He says, "Say therefore to the people of Israel." I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession, for I am the Lord your God. There's a lot of eyes in there, which is important, because this is what God is doing. We see this as a declaration from God, but God was not just going to bring them, the people of Israel, out of slavery. He was going to flip on its head every system of oppression that his people were experiencing. It's important for us to see that in the way that God redeems his people. There's four ways in which we're actually going to look at redemption in Exodus from everything that the people of Israel were enslaved to. First, there's a redemption from political oppression. Um, uh, The the, the gentleman who wrote the book that we're kind of basing the series on, The Mission of God's People, Christopher Wright, said this in 2010 uh, about this situation. He says, Economic asylum... Basically, the people of Israel coming into Egypt to to receive asylum from what was happening in the famine around the in the region. Economic asylum turned into a prison house of political hatred, unfounded fears, exploitation, and discrimination. Exodus one echoes through the stories of many such ethnic minorities in the modern era, suffering the suspicion and systematic oppression of host states. God's redeeming work includes bringing this political enslavement to an end, enabling Israel to eventually become established as a freed people. Provisional asylum for a temporary survival had kept the promise of Abraham going. But permanent slavery under political oppression was intolerable since it would prevent the promise of Abraham to go any further. So to liberate them... God confronted the state power of an empire. God was going to do something so radical and bring out his people that he was going to take on the system and the government that they were oppressed under. So God rescues them from a political oppressor. Secondly, what God does is he redeems them from economic oppression. God's goal was not to just free them all right, God's goal was not to just take the people of Israel out of Egypt and leave them on their own, but to cause them to prosper, to experience what it would look like to live as, with God as king. If it was just about freeing people, and it was just about freeing the Israelites from the political oppression, we would have seen God leave the Israelites after he got them through the Red Sea leave them in the desert, they're now free from the political oppression. No, but what happens is God's plan was to also economically redeem them. It was to give them a land of their own, a land of promise, a land filled with economic prosperity. It's also referred to a land flowing with milk and honey. Right? There was an economic aspect to God's redemptive work here. Home and land ownership has been been and is one of the greatest sources of wealth and stability. Not to mention that without land in an agrarian's economy, you are 100% dependent on others. So if you are a foreigner in another country and they own all the land, there would be no way for you to be free uh, or to free yourself from them because you would be 100% dependent upon them. And as we will, as you continue to read throughout Scripture, it was particularly the economic realm uh, that the Israelites themselves were to live redemptively in, in response to what God had done for them. We see this uh, as God tells them what to do about their land and leaving the edges of their land for people to come and receive and, and to, um, to, to receive uh, the, the wheat on the edge of the property that they own, uh, and, and in so many other ways. But God will rescue them from the economic oppression that they would be under. Third, He would redeem the redemption from social oppression. And if you've read through Exodus chapter one and what the uh, what the Egyptians were doing and what the Pharaohs were doing to the Israelites, um, it is we could read through that this morning. But it is let me just summarize. Um, It is it's not just political and economic. uh, which was which was an attempt, and a failed attempt to stifle the growth of this uh, of the Israelites. But it was also an attempt to um, uh, of subversion from within. What they ended up doing is they would uh, Pharaoh would tell the hisbrew Hezbra- Hebrew midwives um, uh, to 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 kill the babies that they would be delivering. Um, so this was state-sponsored murder and finally state-sponsored genocide where the extermination of all male Hebrew babies um, would, be, um, would be killed by the government in, in a way to continue to oppress and, and lord over the Israelites. Thus the lack of political freedoms and the endurance of economic oppression is now compounded by vicious invasion of human rights and, and um, destruction of the family unit. So what happens when you murder someone's child, as Pharaoh was doing, it takes away their dignity, it takes away their future, and it causes them to be more dependent on the state because they don't have any generational hope or stability. Therefore, the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites socially. And therefore, God will redeem the Israelites from this social oppression. And finally, the redemption from a spiritual oppression. And I would say this is maybe even most significantly, the spiritual bondage the Israelites were in, God would redeem. For indeed, the Israelites um, were slaves to Pharaoh, um, and that was a massive hindrance in their worship of the living God. Uh, Israel's bondage is a, has a spiritual dimension to it. It was not merely political or economic or social. In fact, before uh, his request to free uh, the Israelites permanently, Moses' request to Pharaoh, which was rejected, was to let them go and worship, right? Like, let us go worship. That's what we want to do. We want to be able to do that because there was already a system of worship, uh, a state um, system of worship where Pharaoh himself was a god in their system, and so uh, Moses' request, God's request was let me take my people out so that we may worship as we are uh, required to and as we should. And as the story of Exodus 1 develops, it becomes a, what we see as a massive power struggle between, um, between Yahweh, the great I Am, the Lord, and Pharaoh. And as I said, because Pharaoh was claiming to be an, uh, amongst the gods of Egypt, so the victory over the Egyptians was not merely a socioeconomic one and a political one, but it was God's judgment on all the gods of Egypt. So the supreme moment comes when Moses proclaims this as he's crossing through the Sea of Reeds and he says, the Lord, Yahweh, reigns forever and ever, which was a declaration. I'm saying, guess who does not reign forever and ever? It's Pharaoh because he's been defeated. So this declaration of of a spiritual redemption is so important to the story of the Exodus. And see, the problem... As as Christopher Wright points out, the problem was not that, uh, that, Pharaoh, that the, the Hebrews were slaves. right? It's not, not just that they were slaves, but they were slaves to the wrong master and needed to be transferred into the service of the living God. They were serving the wrong master. So when God redeemed Israel at the Exodus, it was not just out of the several dimensions of their bondage, political, economic, social, and spiritual, but also into a covenant relationship with God himself. He doesn't just redeem you out of something, but he redeems you into something. Right? When we talk about redemption and redemptive living, it's not just taking people out of one thing and then leaving them. It's redeeming them into something else. This is the essence of God's redemptive work. It was not just to redeem relieve them of a temporary burden but to bring them out and in, 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 into an eternal blessing that is founded in faith and obedience to the triune God. These aspects, political, economic, social, and spiritual, all of these dimensions are integral to the Bible's first great act of redemption. What God did whenever, that, that God did whatever it would take to rescue Israel out of whatever their bondage Uh, whatever form their bondage took. So the Exodus narrative tells us comprehensively what God did when he redeemed Israel, but it also tells us the reason of why he did so. The clear motivation of the Exodus account is explained in Exodus 1 and 2, and it's twofold. First, it was because God's compassionate concern for people suffering under cruel oppression that is, God's passion for justice is to relieve, relieve the oppression. Secondly, it was because of God's faithfulness to his covenant promise to Abraham. In other words, this, simply, uh, this is simply the biblical God acting on mission and acting in character. Again, this is what God does. It is part of his character. He is a redemptive God. He is the redeemer. Okay? We have, to, we have to get that point. We have to understand that, that this is who God is. And, um, which is why the Exodus points not just to the redemption of um, Israel, but it is a shadow of what was to come, the second and greater Exodus. The transferring of God's people from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his Son. Or as Paul puts it in our verse in Ephesians 1, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And this occurs, this is able to occur because of what Jesus accomplishes as a sacrifice for us on the cross. Which leads us to our second point: the redemption, that that redemption is at the crux of the cross. Right? It is. It is, again, it's who God is, it's what He's doing, and it's at the point, it's at the center focus of the cross. Like we said, the redemption in Exodus points to the cross. All right? It is a promised people in going into a promised land to bring about a promised Savior. All right? It was a necessary process. Ephesians 1.7 says this, In Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Through the Israelites' exodus, God would establish a sacrificial system to shadow the necessary blood atonement for sin. To deal with what is truly the great oppressor, and the great oppression, which is sin, and ultimately its great oppressor, which is Satan. As we read in Hebrews, Jesus perfectly accomplishes the sacrifice necessary for the atonement of our sins, the redemption of our relationship with God himself. Now, and again, we, he did this. As we read in that Exodus 6, 6 passage, right? I, I, I. It doesn't ever stop being the I, I will, I have, I will, right? It never stops doing that when we get to Jesus. It's not because of our works in this. Friends, let me let me remind you, all of our deeds, all of our goodness, all the things that we contribute, right, is is as filthy rags. Right? Not because of our works. The Israelites did nothing. As they were in slavery, they did nothing to deserve redemption out of slavery. Neither do we, who are slaves to sin, do anything to deserve God's redemptive work for us. As Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 will go on, as we continue to read through Ephesians, we'll say, "This says, For grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one can boast. The only one who deserves to boast is Jesus. And it's important that that we don't offer people a system of redemption. We don't offer them a way to get redeemed. Do this and do that and you can be saved. Act this way. We don't offer a, a, a morality to people. Paul Trippett says, Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, We must not offer people a system of redemption, a set of insights and principles, but that we offer people a redeemer. We need to offer people a redeemer. It's not not get better. It's not try better. It's not, hey, live your best life this way. But as broken people, we come to the living God who redeems people, not because of what they've done, but because of who he is. Now this is our only hope for freedom and redemption. We can move from one oppressor to another oppressor thinking that we've achieved something different but it's only through Jesus Christ that we're able to experience true redemption. As the Israelites did at Passover so Christians can look back now at the cross as God's historic rescue mission and look forward to the final redemption of ourselves um, and all of creation. We get to look forward to that because of the cross. As the Israelites celebrated God's redemptive work with the Passover feast, so Christians celebrate God's redemptive passing over our sins with the feast of the Lord's table. There's a connection there for us. It is a person. It is not a system that we look to. This is not a system. This is a The body of Christ broken for you, the blood shed for you, is a person. Just as God redeemed the Israelites and blessed them politically and economically and socially and spiritually, so too are the immense blessings of those who are in Christ. One commentator put it this way. He says, Paul cannot leave the idea of grace. It reappears at the end of verse 7, and he alludes to it at the beginning of verse 8, where he adds to the idea of a free gift of quality and wealthy abundance. Such terminology, he says, about wealth reappears in Ephesians 1.18, 2.7, 3.8, and 16. It occurs only 22 times in the entire New Testament, but five of those times in Ephesians. And in connection with different spiritual blessings. This suggests that the expansive mood of Paul is in as he reflects on all that God is giving us. Perhaps the closest comparison today would be the immense amount of money offered in major lotteries and sweepstakes giveaways. Here, though, it is not merely something for nothing, but an infinity of blessing freely offered. The basic difference, of course, between this gift and and all others, is that it is, securely only, is secured only through a relationship with the giver, and that it is in essence a priceless, intangible um, experience of, of divine forgiveness. Not only has God given us redemption and forgiveness in accordance with his wealth of grace, but He has given it to us with extreme abundance. And it's conveyed by the word here, what we see the word lavished, Right. Let's not skip over this word. He's lavished these things, that his grace upon us. But this is no. This is no just, um, like lackadaisical dispersion of grace. He's like, oh, yeah, oh, well, yeah, I, I guess, I guess you, maybe you got a little bit too much, all right? When your grandmother cuts the piece of cake for you, right? and we've all, if you have that grandmother, you're, you're blessed. But like, your piece of cake is like a quarter of the cake. Right, he's like, oh well, I'm, I'm sorry, I just, I, I just don't, I just don't know how to cut cake. That's not how God does it, right? He does this, and specifically, it says this, with all wisdom and understanding. He lavishes with wisdom and understanding. He gets how much he's lavishing grace upon his people. God gives so much grace that when he gives it, he lavishes it upon his children. If you were to win, let's use the analogy of the commentator. If you were to win like the Powerball or the lottery or whatever kind of sweepstakes it is. Let's say you win $10 million. That's going to change the way you live. It's going to change the way you think about money. It's going to change lots of aspects. It's also going to change how many friends you have right it's going to change all of these things right in the same way we must as God's people understand that the immense amount of grace that God has lavished upon us should change the way we live it should change the way we love people should change the way that we interject ourselves into a society that is broken which leads us to our third and final point, that redemptive living is for redeemed people." Paul says in Ephesians 1:10, "As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, all things in heaven and on earth." When we talk about a people being on mission, we cannot simply think of a mission as an exercise of street evangelism. We must. Be as Christians, those who leverage their lives, who has been filled with the lavished grace that's been put upon us for the sake of others. Discipleship is not a transferring of information from one person to another. It is a life that is sacrificed. There is a lavishing of grace that we who are recipients of grace now get to lavish on other people. There is a future reality of God's redemptive work coming to completion. A work that we are redeemed people and are not just aware of it, but participants in it. We are participants in the divine work of God. Therefore, we must interject ourselves into a broken world with utter abandon, knowing that that is the mission of God. There was, whatever the obstacle was, God was going to overcome it to redeem his people. And we are not just people who understand that. We are participants in this divine act. To boldly proclaim truth, calling all men to repentance and faith. People ask, like, hey, I just don't know how to say it. Just say it. Like, interject, step into the moment. The Christian community, Tim Chester puts it this way, the Christian community is both a sign and a promise of God's coming liberation. We are the presence of God's liberating kingdom in a broken world. We are the place where liberation can be found, freedom can be found. Offering a hope for exiled people, we are to welcome broken people into a broken community we are the community among whom liberation should be our present reality. We should live as liberated, freed people, people of liberty church. You are freed people. Live as freed people. We are the light of the world, a city on a hill. This challenge for us to articulate Jesus' message of liberation in a way that connects with people, people's experiences and offers a place of liberation for them should be the mark of the Christian community. This is something that is not natural for us. It is supernatural for us. We must fight against the temptation to just operate as individual agents. But we must act together as a community to do this. So where there is political injustice, economic exploitation, social oppression and spiritual bondage, what actions are appropriate for those who share in God's compassion and judgment and justice? What acts are appropriate for us? We where people are torn apart by the upward spiral of debt and the downward spiral of poverty with all the human indignity and social exclusion that go with them. What actions reflect the theological principle of redemption? What actions, church? What actions are we called to? What are the theological outworkings of what we truly believe has happened to us? Will we choose to define our own mission with some degree of similarity to Jesus in the ways that he defined his own? This is what he says, drawing from the prophets and using their language about Exodus and Jubilee. He says this in Luke 4. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the freedom found in the gospel. Is that something that just Jesus did and we point to that? Or is that something that Jesus did and invites us into? You have to answer that for yourself. And understand that the mission of God's people is being like Jesus. It is the nature and character of God made perfectly manifest through the person and work of Jesus Christ to redeem. And for us who are redeemed, we must live as redemptive people, lavishing the grace of God on others so that they may experience redemption themselves. I'll leave you with this last quote from um, William Wilberforce, who was um, particularly responsible for the freeing of slaves in England. He says this, May God enable me to have a single eye and a simple heart. Desiring to please God, to do good to my fellow creatures, and testify my gratitude to my adorable Redeemer. Let's pray. Father of great mercy, Redeemer of your people, the hope of the world, would you this day open our callous eyes, break free our stone-laden hearts, that those who have been set free would be free indeed and bring the good news to captives, not just telling the lame where to find the Savior, but taking them to our Savior through whatever rooftop or obstacles that would come in our way. May the redeemed of the Lord live as the redeemed people this day and for all days until you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.